and Lord Jesus Christ. Woe to them, for they go the way of Cain and abandon themselves to Balaam's error for the sake of gain and perish in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, feeding themselves, they are waterless clouds carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the deepest darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, See, the Lord is coming with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict everyone of all the deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers and malcontents. They indulge in their own lusts. They are bombastic in speech, flattering people to their own advantage. But you, beloved, must remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. For they said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers indulging their own ungodly lusts. It is these worldly people devoid of the Spirit who are causing divisions. But you, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Look forward to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are wavering. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And have mercy on still others with fear, hating even the tunic defiled by their bodies. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand without blemish in the presence of his glory with rejoicing to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. My prayer is that these, your people, will see less of me and more of thee until they see all of thee and none of me. Amen. Good morning. It is good to be together again in God's house I know that many of you were unable to attend worship last week, and for many of you, this is your first time back in church since our city was victimized by an atrocious act of domestic terrorism. There were a number of security concerns both last week and still this week that prevented us from having our morning worship services. Three of the four roads that surrounded our church were still closed, so thank you for your continued flexibility and understanding. I know that there are still many questions about what transpired here at the church and along our streets. I will do my best today to continue to reveal the events of that horrific day. If you have not yet listened to or read my sermon from last week, please consider it mandatory reading for the members of this congregation. 
It is part one of a three-part series that God has called me to preach in the wake of this event. That sermon, this one, and the next one will all be filled with information about those events on August 12th, and they will outline in no uncertain terms the ways and means that this congregation will step up to lead this city and initiate a call to conscience that will spread across the entire country. Welcome to the National Spotlight. As Bill Clark, the chair of our witness team and the many other saints who were serving here uh, last Saturday will attest to, August 12th was an altar call for this church. And thankfully, there were many who were willing and able to answer that call. In the days and weeks ahead, you too, each of you, will have the opportunity to answer this same call and respond to God's voice. You too will have the opportunity to step out of the boat and walk across the sea. But take note, these are deep waters. And there will be some who deny the power of our Lord. The wind is loud and the rain is cold. There will be some who prefer the safety of their own ships. There will be some who retreat below deck, denying all that they have seen and heard, clinging to their own truths and encasing their hearts in stone. Brick by brick and stone by stone, they will build an eternal fortress, all the while thinking that they will be delivered from the fury of this storm if they only keep silent and wait. But as Jude reminds us, we will have mercy on these people. Who here is familiar with the book of Jude? Hello, church. Even Hugh Schaefer, our lay leader, emailed me. He said, I don't think I've ever read this. Where is Jude in the Bible? Next to the last chapter. Who is Jude? All of this will be answered today. And in the same fashion as last week where we were constantly asking ourselves, who is Jesus? Today, I would encourage you to always be attuned to the question of, now what? Terrorists attacked our city. Now what? Our church is located at ground zero of this attack. Now what? I know what I saw on TV was horribly wrong, but what do I do about it? Are my children safe? Is our city safe? What really happened? What's next? Now what? Well, Jude will help us figure that out. Um, I know we don't have pew Bibles for this service, so up on the screens here, we're going we're gonna to go back through it verse by verse here. Jude is a somewhat unknown piece of literature in the scripture. It is perhaps even the most neglected book in the Bible, apart from the minor prophets. There are times, though, in the history of the church, specifically during a revival in the church, where Jude becomes one of the most applicable pieces of scripture. In the gullible and undiscerning age that we live in, where voices of ignorance and untruths speak about permits, statues, city councilors, or both sides, the letter of Jude stands as an uncompromising statement of our faith. And even though this book is brief, 
one chapter of 25 verses, it is not easy to read, and we cannot rush through it. So let's begin. Verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, who are beloved in God the Father and kept safe for Jesus Christ. Who is Jude? A servant of Jesus Christ, but not just a servant. Jude is Jesus' half-brother. Jude is the brother of James, and we know that James was the brother of Jesus, so we know that Jude and Jesus had the same mother. Take note here, though, of how he still humbles himself before Christ. Jude would have every right to say, hey, I grew up sleeping in the same house as Jesus. I am amazing just by association. But he doesn't. It is a greater honor to serve Jesus than to simply know Jesus. And another piece of this introductory puzzle is the understanding that Jude did not become a Christian until after the resurrection. All of his childhood and young adult life, Jude was a skeptic, an unbeliever. This might explain why his writings are deeper and more profound. He is a man who has come through the ranks of the skeptics and addresses things in a very direct manner. He doesn't mess around with preparation or ease. He cuts right to the core because Jude understands that we simply don't have the time to play around with niceties. To the surprise of no one, I really like that about Jude, We can also note that Jude is writing to those who are called, who have beloved in God, kept safe for Jesus Christ. My friends, last week we spoke about the call, the command to get out of the boat. We can attest to the safety and assurance that is offered to those who put their full trust in Jesus Christ. We can speak of the safety that was offered in this building the physical well-being of not only the bricks and mortar which remain unscathed, but also the countless volunteers and victims who use these bricks as a barrier against untenable violence. We have been called and kept safe. We are beloved by God. This letter is for us. So now what? Written between 65 and 80 A.D., this letter was sent to the people slugging it out in the trenches. Persecution is abounding, and becoming a Christian was a great price to pay. So as verse 2 says, may mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Mercy, peace, and love. That is what the author intends to convey, and so too do we. Mercy, peace, and love in abundance. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? I would note, though, that peacemaking is different than peacekeeping. Moving on. Verse 3. Beloved, while eagerly preparing to write to you about the salvation we share, I find it necessary to write an appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once entrusted for all the saints. Jude says, I was going to do this one thing, but something else happened. 
I set out to write a letter about salvation, but the fact is that having faced the truth of where we are and what has happened, I now have to write something different. Something has happened, and you must now contend for the faith. Now, when I say faith, I am speaking of the truth with a capital T. The truth that concerns God, Christ, all humanity, our mutual salvation. We're talking about God's truth. Something has happened, and we must now contend for the truth. Contend. We must contend for the faith. We must struggle for the faith. We must assert, maintain, hold, claim, argue, insist, state, declare, profess, and affirm this faith because something has happened. But what? What has happened? Thank you, Thesaurus. Verse 4, here is what has happened. Certain intruders have stolen in among you. People who were long ago designated for this condemnation as ungodly. People who pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Oh, mercy. Intruders, serpents, have stolen in among us. People who we thought were long gone. People who we have overtly condemned for decades have crept maliciously back into our midst. These people pervert the word of God. They use it for their own nefarious purposes, taking unrestricted license with the cross of our crucified Redeemer to fulfill their own selfish and evil desires and deny the full power, freedom, and authority of Jesus Christ. My friends, there are snakes among us. Nazis in our midst. White supremacists who are still driving our streets. Eating in our restaurants and carrying their guns around the mall. You need to know this. They are still here. These terrorists are still in our town. They are driving around in their trucks, slowing down to see if the person who is passing them in the car is black, female, or has too many coexist and Obama bumper stickers on the back. Then they will rev their engines, they will follow them to a parking lot and intimidate them. This is happening. They are walking around with their phones out, recording videos and taking pictures. They are on a constant reconnaissance mission. They are still here and have threatened to come back. You need to know this. The real message of today, though, is not that they are still here, but that they have always been here. So now what? Evil incarnate has walked and is still walking our streets. We must now contend for the faith. We must, without reservation, assert, maintain, hold, claim, argue, insist, state, declare, profess, and affirm the faith that has been entrusted to the saints of God. You, who claim to follow Jesus Christ, have been entrusted with a holy and sacred duty to contend for the faith. 
Hear me, church. Those who have ears to hear, hear this. On August 9th, before the rally, I went to the head of the snake and I contended for peace. But as it says in verse 11, they have gone the way of Cain, abandoned themselves to Balaam's error. They have perished in Korah's rebellion. Woe to them. Woe. As points of clarity, this is something that normally gets skipped over, but this, when preparing for a sermon, it just it blew my mind. The way of Cain is one of envy and fratricide. Cain killed his brother. The way of Cain is a way of hatred and murder. So those who go the way of Cain hate their brethren, persecute them unto death, and by their false doctrine are marked as absent from the presence of God. Have you ever heard of the mark of Cain? God placed a sign, an omen, a warning, assumedly visually on or around Cain for the rest of his life. So let me ask you, church, on August 12th, did we not see roving bands of envious murderers walking around our streets with clearly identifiable signs of their sinfulness? Yes, we did. I'm telling you, Jude is legit. Jude is not playing around. If you ever think that there is something new under the sun, there is not. Balaam's error. John Gill goes on to explain that Balaam's error was an immoderate love of money, which, as it is the root of all evil, is the bane of religion. It is the source of heresy. It is what the false teachers were greatly addicted to. Where a love of money prevails, it is insatiable. The error which Balaam led others into was both idolatry and adultery, which many people ran greedily after. Balaam is one of four distinct individuals who, according to the Jews, shall have no part or portion in the world to come. So when Nazis gather around idols, I mean statues, follow the money. So many decisions, laws, and political issues that both allow and condone the continued existence of white supremacy are financially motivated. The gentrification of our city, a living wage, access to housing, food, and health care are all financially motivated issues. Right? Korah's rebellion. This was the best one. And this was new for me. Korah was one of the rich leaders of the Levites. Korah was a cousin of Moses and Aaron. Korah felt that he had been slighted. Korah felt that he had been overlooked in the distribution of the highest priestly honors and leadership. Korah thinks that he is due some kind of honor and privilege that he's not already getting. Hello, somebody. You can't make this up. So Korah got together with some of his buddies through their experienced and clever campaigning, 
aided by Korah's riches, influence, and knowledge, convinced as many as 250 respected leaders of the Jewish camp to join in a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. So Korah and his buddies come marching up, shouting, you will not replace us, or something similar. It didn't say. I'm going to assume that's what they said. And Moses tries to reason with them again one more time. But before Moses could finish speaking, the earth cleft asunder and swallowed Korah and his associates with their families and belongings. They were buried alive and perished by a terrible death that made even the people who stood nearby flee in terror. The next instant, fire from heaven devoured the 250 men who had dared to contest Aaron's priestly authority. It is all in the book of Numbers. It is unreal. Now, as I said, on August 9th, before the rally, I spoke to the head of the serpent. I contended for safety peace, and an opportunity to ensure that no one got hurt or died. And following a rambling about Muslim invasions, indoctrination, and replacement, the serpent told me, Deus Vult. Deus Vult is Latin for God wills it. It was the cry of the people at the declaration of the first crusade by Pope Urban II. To them, this is a holy war. They are here to do battle. They are here on a crusade. And lest there be any doubt left, you don't show up to a First Amendment pro-statue rally dressed in full military fatigues carrying assault rifles. They came for war. And to that point, let me again be overtly clear. There is not, was not, both sides to August 12th. There were only those who came to kill and destroy. They were marked like Cain, caught up in their greed for power and wealth, rotting in their sin of idolatry, proclaiming a false message of victimhood and seeking to right some imagined wrong and assert their white privilege. If you were not one of the terrorists, you were a helpless bystander or you were a saint of the city who stood guard, taking to the streets to protect the most vulnerable and fight back against this unholy terror. On August 12th, it was the anti-fascists, the anarchists, Black Lives Matter, Surge, and APOC who lined up on the sidewalks and protected this church and every Jew, Muslim, clergy person, and the many people of all creeds, colors, and genders who sought refuge in our sanctuary. They stood between this church and the vehicles that were brandished as weapons. They moved into the line of fire when a small group of terrorists walked by and drew their firearms. They helped defend the police officer who was stationed at the end of the street of our parking lot, who was also a victim of the violence and horrors that occurred that day. These children with their bats, these children with their bats and their shields were the only ones who were truly prepared for what would happen and are to be commended 
for their actions and referred to as saints of the city. There were also many individual police officers and emergency personnel, including the officer at our corner, the two helicopter pilots, who are also to be commended for their actions in securing our city and our church. Officers and firemen who lined up around the front, who openly and honestly communicated with our church leadership, who respected our policies and helped enforce our borders, Our city was a war zone, and there was one enemy that day. One enemy who looked just like me. So now what? Verses 12 and 13. These are blemishes on your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, feeding themselves, they are waterless clouds carried along by the winds. They are autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the deepest darkness has been reserved forever. Get it, Jude? These Nazis, these terrorists... These white supremacists, they are blemishes on our love feasts. When we gather for communion, they come to the table. They come to this table and countless others like it around the country to eat. They are fearless in the church, focused only on themselves. They have stolen in not only to our town, but also into our churches. And though they are as numerous as the clouds... They are empty. They are trees that bear no fruit, twice dead, going wherever they want to, unrooted and non-committal. So now what? Here it is. The United Methodist Book of Resolutions, which is counted as a piece of the doctrine of our faith. This is United Methodist Doctrine. If you are a United Methodist, this is for you. This is what your church says. The United Methodist Book of Resolution clearly identifies that the institutional church still discriminates on the basis of race. The United Methodist Church suggests that the church focus not only on the plight of people living in urban or rural ghettos, but also on white privilege and the impact on white persons. For example, when churches in white or predominantly white communities need to start asking why there are no persons of color in their community. They need to be asking why the prison population in their state is disproportionately black and Hispanic persons. They need to ask why there are so few black and Hispanic persons in high paying jobs and prestigious universities. Hello, somebody. Why schools in white communities receive more than their fair share of education dollars and why white persons receive preferential treatment from white police officers. Our church says that. Our church also says that we ask each local church with a predominantly white membership to reflect on its own willingness to welcome persons without regard to race 
and assess the relative accessibility in housing, employment, education, and recreation in its community to white persons and to persons of color. Secondly, our church asks each local congregation to welcome persons of color into membership and full participation in the church and community and to advocate for their access to the benefits which white persons take for granted. We challenge individual white persons to confess their participation in the sin of racism and repent for past and current racial practices. And we challenge individual ethnic persons to appropriate acts of forgiveness. We're going to bring everybody to the table. Finally, from, and I'm quote, this is all official stuff. We call on all persons whatever their racial or ethnic heritage, to work together to restore the broken body of Christ. End quote. That is the what. That is how we will be responding to the evil that still occupies our city. We will contend for the faith. We will assert, maintain, hold, claim, argue, insist, state, declare, profess, and affirm the evil and sinfulness of the many racial injustices that permeate through our society. We will recognize our own complicitness and complacency in these systems. We will remember the words of Jeremiah who asserts that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but that our struggle is against the rulers, the authorities, the powers and principalities. Our struggle is against the cosmic powers of this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That is what? Let's read on. Verses 14 to 15. It was also said about these Seventh generation from Adam, it was prophesied, See, the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment and to convict everyone of all the deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So just a quick straw poll. Who here is now convicted that the sins of racism, white supremacy, and matters of racial injustice need to be openly and outwardly addressed by this church. Okay. Almost everyone. Almost. Remember, God told Isaiah that only a tenth of the people would listen. And that many hear the sound of God's word, but do not feel the power of it. God, sometimes in righteous judgment, gives men up to the blindness of mind. Because they will not receive the truth in the love of it. Going on. Verse 16. There are grumblers and malcontents. They indulge their own lusts. They are bombastic in speech, flattering people to their own advantage. Please note, we will still hear grumbling from those 
who are given up to this blindness. There will be those who watch the TV news and believe what they hear from all the talking heads, the grumblers, and malcontents. They will listen to bombastic presidents and politicians who look to turn these events into something advantageous. This is a new and difficult truth for some people. I understand that. But you, verses 17 through 19, you, beloved must remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers indulging in their own ungodly lusts. It is these worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, who are causing the divisions. My friends, the road before us is long, it is difficult, and it is narrow. The effects of slavery and racism are a deep wound that has never properly healed. There are many who will be quick to dismiss the events of August 12th and move on. They will fail to acknowledge what happened and why it happened. They will condemn the car that ran through a crowd while at the same time condoning the practices and policies that have allowed systematic and cultural racism to get to this point. You can't do both. Where are the doctors, nurses, and other medical professionals? Raise your hands. How do deep wounds heal? Slowly, painfully, over a long period of time. This cannot be a micro-fix that simply scabs over and is held together with a band-aid. We have to dig into this moment. We have to pack it in and slowly remove the packing so it heals from the bottom up. Is one life worth one monument? On these issues, the horrific events of August 12th on their causes... And on our path forward, we cannot be divided. So verses 20 to 23, you, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Look forward to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are wavering. Save others by snatching them out of the fire and have mercy on still others with fear, hating even the tunic defiled by their bodies. As a clarifying point, if you have questions, that's wonderful. I will do my best to answer them. You need to send me an email. I know that this is still very confusing, frightening, and difficult. But this is the work that this church will be doing. And as we move forward together, as we heal together, we will all need to extend to one another an abundance of mercy. Next week, we will talk about the long road ahead and discuss how we will be building up our faith through Bible studies, worship services, book studies, open forums and conversations we will keep ourselves in the love of God through continued prayer, acts of piety, and acts of mercy. And you have my word that I will continue to preach and prophesy 
snatching people out of the fire because people are spiritually and physically dying in our streets. And as ministers of the gospel, we all need to be preaching Jesus. You need to preach Jesus in your work, your home, your grocery stores, your social clubs, wherever you go. You need to preach Jesus like you are losing your mind because people are literally dying. And so, in conclusion, verses 24 and 25, to him who is able to keep you from falling, God will not let us fail in this. We can do it, church. To make you stand without blemish in the presence of his glory with rejoicing to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. I have two testimonies from August 12th that I would like to read to you. The first is one that we received as a Facebook message to our church account. It says, Hey there, I was one of the people that you guys provided sanctuary to on Saturday. I just wanted to say thank you from the very, very bottom of my heart. I know that you were threatened and attacked for what you did. When I saw you standing in front of your church investments and orange t-shirts, it was one of the most beautiful moments of a very dark and very scary day. You were all very brave. You cheerfully welcomed strangers into your church without judgment or question and created a safe place for us to rest and receive nourishment. You didn't bait and switch us or make us listen to a sermon before we could get the physical nourishment we needed. I am gay and left-leaning for the most part. I do not feel either welcome or safe in churches. That was one of the most Christ-like acts I have ever witnessed with my own eyes. I used to be a Christian. In fact, I grew up in the United Methodist Church. One of the things that pushed me from the church was the sense of judgment I got from other Christians, the sense of us versus them when talking about non-Christians. Long before I lost faith in God, I had lost faith in Christians. You restored that for me on Saturday, and I really don't have words to express how grateful I am for that. Your actions were a powerful testament to the kind of love and bravery that Jesus can inspire in people. And I've tried to tell every Christian I know about you so they can be as inspired as I was by your actions. Thank you so much for the work that you do and the people that you are. This other one is a note from Becky Allison. You guys know Becky? She said, I have a story to share with my first UMC friends from the Ivy Creek prayer service that was held Monday night in the park. She said, many folks there shared their stories related to Saturday. One young man said that he had been at the rally on Saturday and that he had been terrified. 
he said that he spent most of the day in there and pointed to the church. He went on to say that he hadn't spent much time in churches and that he wasn't quite sure if he believed in God. He went on to describe the very warm welcome he received at First UMC. And he said that if he ever went to church, it would be with the people like the ones he found there. Changing lives through Jesus Christ, indeed. We can do it, church. We can do it. Let's stand and sing one more song.